0: i to worship with you this morning. I certainly appreciate the invitation, uh, Mrs. Leonore, uh, to fellowship with uh, my Donald's Grove church family. My school's downstairs, so I have the <laughs> added benefit of, of visiting with my friends downstairs uh, whenever I come. It's, it's truly a privilege uh, to be here today. You know, you've chosen an appropriate theme, daring to ask for more. You know, um, in a, an age like this one, in a time in which we live, we sometimes need to be reminded, as Jeremiah was, that we have the privilege of not just asking, but to ask for more. You know, I want to share with you a, a story of someone by the name of George Mueller. He was known as a, a drinker, a gambler, and the life of the party. But this man morphed into a man who would later exemplify the essence of today's theme and today's message, daring to ask for more. You've probably heard the extraordinary life journey of Mr. Mueller. He was born in Germany in 1805, and he led a illicit life, moving from school to school. During these early years, as He would devise clever ways to swindle money. Midway through his college years, he was introduced to Christianity. Later, in 1832, Mueller moved to Bristol, England. And there, he would see hundreds of children, including very young children, as young as three years old, four years old, living as orphans on the streets of Bristol without parents, or without a home. This sight of so many orphans really bothered Mueller. After obtaining a job as a preacher, Mueller soon gave up his salary, much to the dismay of his new bride. He believed that this selfless act could lead church members who were giving out of duty to now give out of desire. George also eliminated the renting of the church pews, arguing that it gave unfair advantage and prestige to the rich. Within weeks, Mueller and his wife prepared their own rented home to receive 30 orphan girls. But as you might imagine, there were hundreds of boys and girls throughout the city who needed a home, and who needed someone to care for them. So Mueller knew that he had to do something different. He had to build an orphanage where he could house these children and find caretakers to care for them, along with his wife. Before long, before too long, Mueller was able to secure one building and later another And then another, and still another, until 34 years after the first orphanage was built, George now ran five large orphanage houses that accommodated at one time 1,722 children. Over the 40-plus years that he served in this capacity, or he carried out this work alongside preaching and ministering and teaching, He had housed and cared for tens of thousands of the orphaned children of Bristol. Why am I sharing this account of George Mueller's life this morning? You see, George Mueller had no money of his own to commit to this project. Within the first four weeks of marriage, he had his wife sell all of the niceties that she had moved in with when she married him because he didn't want to be burdened down in case God had called him to move to another place of service. He wanted to be free. He refused to accept a salary, as I mentioned before, which meant that he had no money of his own to care for himself, his wife, and his newborn baby. George did not make any financial requests for assistance. Can you imagine that? He didn't take out any loans and he didn't send any letters out asking for donations. He didn't call Queen Caroline and later Queen Victoria to request money to buy food for the hundreds of orphaned children and to pay the staff and to operate the facility. And as I said before, he did not even go into debt. It cost over 100,000 pounds in the mid-1800s, to build those five homes. George Mueller had vowed that he would ask no one but God for assistance. And he determined that he would only go to God for his wants. George dared to ask and ask for more. And when the blessings came, George was ready to receive them. Many times he received unsolicited food donations only hours before mealtime to feed his family or the children at the orphanage, further strengthening his faith in God. Although George remained poor and he never had much, he continued to grant, God continued to grant George more and more and more George Mueller was not a Seventh-day Adventist. On one well-documented occasion, George and his wife and his staff gave thanks for the breakfast when all the children were seated at the table, even though there was absolutely nothing in the house to eat. As they finished praying, someone knocked on the door with sufficient fresh bread for everyone, And the milkman gave plenty of fresh milk before because his cart has broken down in front of the orphanage. Over time over the period of time that he ran the orphanage, George Mueller received the equivalent of ninety million pounds, or today twelve thousand excuse me, twelve million five hundred thousand dollars to care for Bristol's children. What an extraordinary journey of faith. What an extraordinary journey of faith. Join me in prayer as we continue to ask for God's presence. Father in heaven, I desire the faith of George Mueller. We desire the faith of this man, but more so, we desire the faith of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, righteous Father, your servant Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for sakes he became poor that we, through his poverty, might become rich. So may the richness and the sweet fellowship of your Spirit lift our hearts, and strengthen our faith this morning. Teach us today. We humbly submit our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture for today, taken from Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, tells us, call on me, or call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Let's just take a few moments to explore the setting and context for this invitation and exhortation given to Jeremiah. A chapter before that, in chapter 32 of Jeremiah, we are told that Jeremiah is in the court of the, of the king's prison. He's put there by King Zedekiah, the king of Judah. You see, King Zedekiah was quite displeased with Jeremiah for prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem and the impending invasion of the Babylonians. So he put Jeremiah in prison. Both Judah and Israel would be destroyed, Jeremiah warned, and because the leaders, including the kings and the princes and the priests, as well as the members of the various tribes, of Judah and Israel had again turned their backs on God and led Him to be angry with them, they would be destroyed. Although God had taught them and had placed protections around them so that the neighboring nations would not invade and plunder, yet they had refused to obey His instruction, which was simply to serve Him only. Instead, they had defiled the temple of God. Jeremiah had pronounced that as a result of their disobedience, they would not escape the sword of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and the resulting famine and pestilence that would ensue. Yes, the Babylonians would fight against the city, chapter 32, verse 29, and set it on fire and burn the houses where God's people offered sacrifices to Baal and poured out drink offerings. To Baal. The king himself would be captured and would be taken to Babylon. This was a condemning prophecy. Those events just described preceded this extraordinary invitation which God gives to Jeremiah in chapter 33, verse 3, where he asks Jeremiah to call on him. While Jeremiah was still in prison, God again spoke to him. Look with me at the second message that he gave to Jeremiah. In chapter 33, verse 2, it tells us this is what the Lord says, reading from the NIV. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Verse 3, call To me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. God had to remind this man of God. God had to remind this man of God, this prophet, the one whom he had called with the responsibility to communicate to God's people on God's behalf. God has to remind Jeremiah of his credentials in verse 2. Essentially, God is saying, I know, Jeremiah, you are in prison. I know you have been treated unfairly. You've been put there unjustly. Your crime was to do what I asked you to do, which was to speak to King Hezekiah and to my people. You have it pretty rough, Jeremiah. You are just a messenger, and look how they've treated you. But Jeremiah, might I remind you that I am the suffering Lord? Jeremiah, you must always remember that it was I who formed the earth. I made the world. That includes all of its inhabitants, including my people here in Judah. The children who hate you so much. Even Zedekiah, yes. I made him too. Not only, Jeremiah, did I form the earth. I established it. That means I created it and I set it in motion. I populated it, Jeremiah. Everything and everyone lives and moves and are dependent upon me. Jeremiah, are you listening to me? Call on me, Jeremiah. I implore you, call on me. Yes, right here. In the prison spot, call on me, my dear sister, my dear brother. It may feel like midnight in the cold darkness of your circumstances. He says the same to you and to me. I am still God, and I'm ever so close, especially now. So call on me. Haven't I reminded you that all my promises are yea and amen? In Christ Jesus, and that my word does not return unto me void, but it stands fast forever and ever, I am still the God who makes and keeps promises. You might recall, Jeremiah, how I appeared to Moses in a burning bush, how I turned his rod into a snake, and how I opened up a highway in the middle of the big Red Sea, and You might remember, Jeremiah, what I did for 90-year-old Sarah and the aged Hannah, a fetus growing in those barren, aged wombs. Or have you forgotten about Joshua, who prayed that the sun would stand still, and it did. And I gave the Israelites the victory over the Amorites. Oh, Jeremiah, so much on your plate lately. So many personal and job and prophesy related issues before we end this conversation. I wanted to be sure, Jeremiah, that you remember the echoes of Elijah's prayer on Mount Carmel and how I showed up and reminded my rebellious people who indeed is the true God and how I used an orphan girl, Esther, Queen Esther, Then, used as an instrument to save an entire race of Jews. Hold fast to your faith, Jeremiah, even in your prison cell. Yes, you've prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem, and sadly, it's going to happen. But can I just tell you the rest of the story, Jeremiah? Great things, Jeremiah. Mighty things, because the story... Does not end with the loss of your job or a terminal illness or a divorce or the death of a loved one. No, thank God. or oh, God is a God of new beginnings. Amen. Yes, while my people will suffer for turning their backs on me and for their wickedness, I have given them hope, because I'm a restorer of the breach. Behold. Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 6 says, Behold, I will bring health and cure them and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and of truth. Jeremiah reflects on the constancy and the restorative power of his God. In Lamentations chapter 3 verse 23, and he exclaims, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen. God, through Jeremiah, pronounces that he will gather his people from all countries from to where they had been scattered in his anger, and he will bring them again to this place and give them safe dwelling. They will be his people, and he will be their God. He will make a covenant with them, verse 40. Just as he brought evil on his people, he will bring good. And just as Jeremiah was called to serve God and to be his messenger, so you and I are called to be the messengers of God. Yes, God's people have put other things before them just as Israel has or did and Judah did so that who God is and his plan for all lives have been distorted and often ignored. Jeremiah was in a desperate situation and there God had to remind him to call on him. So the question, brothers and sisters... The question for us this morning is, how desperate are we for the rich spiritual blessings, the deliverance, the breakthrough, if you will, that our Father has in store for us? How desperate are we? How do we get to that place where our lives, in our lives, where we dare to ask God for more, just as he's asked us to. I want to suggest this morning five, six truths that will aid us in this journey of daring to ask for more. First, we must recognize. We must recognize what he has already provided for us. We must nurture a thankful spirit. This first attribute is often dismissed in our society of abundance and ease. New technologies, new conveniences, new medication keep us kicking. Comforts and extravagance often suffocate the stark blessings and opportunities God willingly gives to us. And what has he given us, you ask? Life, John tells us in John chapter 10, verse 10 Abundant life, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The privilege of his presence is still with us. The composer, Thomas Chisholm, says, morning by morning, new mercies I see, all I have needed, thy hands have provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto us. I came to better understand what it is to live with an attitude of gratefulness from an 82-year-old Baptist woman, Mrs. Morris. I would see her often on my early morning trips to the health club, barely able to walk with much needed help from her walker and later two canes. It was clear that she had a long, long road to recovery having just had double knee surgery, plus other medical complications. I would often hold the door for her as she walked between the double door entrance of the health club. It would take her a very, very long time to walk through. Sometimes it would take five to seven minutes just to walk between the entrance of the double doors to her car, which her husband had parked right there at the entrance, feet away. Oh, she didn't want me to wait long in holding the door for her because she was moving so very slowly. She knew that I was in a hurry to get to my car and to get to work. So she would say, oh, honey, don't, don't do that. Go ahead, please, please, just, just go ahead. But it never felt right to just release the door and go on my merry way. So I kept holding the door on those occasions. I was learning to slow down know me well. So I had to reply, it's no problem, take your time. And I was thinking, the faster the better, I gotta go. (laughs) All along the short but long way to her car, she would beam with a smile and exude a warmth that was palpable. It seemed to ooze out of her from deep down. She would begin praising God as she looked me dead in my eyes, she said, she would say, Isn't God good? She would exclaim, almost beckoning a response from me. She she would continue by saying, I'm so thankful this morning. Oh I'm so thankful. Shaking her head from side to side, she God is so good to me. Isn't he good? Isn't he good to you? She would look me. Deeper into my soul, she would look. "He is so good," I would enjoin trying to muster up some courage. I would just wanted to go. "He's so good to me," I would say yes. "Yes, yes, he is good to." "He is good to me," she would reply, as she crept painfully slowly, You are so good to me." I would hear her say that time and time again. In the coming months, I watched as she healed slowly and was able to move, this time with canes, her gait becoming a little bit more upright. It was not uncommon for me to see her praising God with the health club receptionist or with some other member of the health club. And so I would get back into my car to return home on those early, frigid winter mornings, or those sticky summer mornings, thinking, "I missed something. I have asked for so many blessings, I asked for so, pled for so much more from God, but I had not cultivated a spirit and an attitude of gratefulness like that I have witnessed in Messengers. Forgive me, Lord." I believe that our capacity to receive more and more of what we dare to ask for is in direct proportion to our continuous spirit of gratitude for what God has already blessed us with. A grateful heart readies us to receive and handle wisely what we ask for and the blessings will follow. The second truth that will aid us in this journey of daring to ask for more involves rearranging and prioritizing to make God first, central, and final. Ellen White tells us in Councils to the Church, pages 185 through 186, she said, says, Most professed Christians... Have no sense of the spiritual strength they might obtain were they as ambitious, zealous, and persevering to gain a knowledge of divine things as they are to obtain the perishable things of this life. Many, she continues, are satisfied to be spiritual dwarfs. Thus, many will be lost while hoping and desiring to be Christians. They make no earnest effort, and therefore they will be weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your day will be different when you rearrange it to put God first, center, and last. Your pain may still be there, but it will be more bearable when you rearrange the priorities and draw nearer to Jesus. He has not promised us in James, or has he not promised us in James chapter 4 verse 8, saying, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. We know that he cannot lie. One of our biggest challenges, however, is allowing those good things, family obligations, job responsibilities, church responsibilities, to remain in the way and take place of the best thing, Jesus. Ellen White cautions us on this as well. She said we would do well to heed this. She says, minor matters occupy the attention and the divine power which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church and which would bring all other blessings in its train is lacking, though offered in plentitude from testimonies for the church. I want to share a short story, a story about John Wesley, a powerful preacher in the 1800s. You know, he had been invited to visit, to spend some time, an evening, with Lord Byron, the most powerful man in England at that time. That was a great honor. And as people would months and months to get an audience with Lord Byron. However, before the evening was over, John Wesley got up and began excusing himself, saying that he needed to leave. Lord Byron was almost offended. "'Why are you leaving so soon?' he asked. "'Don't you realize that I am a very important man, "'and many people would beg, or they do beg, to spend time at my table?' John Wesley's simple reply was this. "'I don't mean to offend you, sir,' I feel very honored about our time together, but I have an appointment with the King of the Universe now, and I dare not be tired. Neither do I dare be late. Making our time with our friend Jesus should be our priority and our aim. What would it be like? What would it be like, Brother Fife, if you were having a board meeting? In my notes, I had pastor, but I heard that you don't have a pastor right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Okay. What would it be like if, as you were having a board meeting, you noticed that throughout the two, two-and-a-half-hour two period, some board members got up intermittently, excusing themselves for some minutes, and then returned. Later, you discovered that their absences were because they had a divine appointment with the king of the universe that they had vowed to keep. Our children know well of the appointment that Daniel, and for that he was thrown into a den of hungry lions, but God saved him. Isn't he a faithful God, a dependable God, an untimed God, a God with us? That leads us to our third truth
1: that will aid us
0: in this journey of daring to ask for more, and that is trusting God by hanging on to his promises. Daring to ask for more requires us to trust God's wisdom, not our own, for he sees with laser beam application through the life cycle of all lives and into eternity. So you've got that sickness that threatens to take you out of here, He's got the potent salve for your deep, deep medical, physical, or emotional wound. And that salve may not be physical healing. It may be peace of mind. Trust him still. Don't doubt him. Much of the healing that we really need is healing from our fears and healing from our doubts of who God is and what he can do in us and for us. He has listened to your prayers for your son, for your daughter, for your grandchild. For 15 years and still, you don't have an answer, or so it seems. I challenge you, dare to ask him for more, more faith to keep on trusting him through those groans which cannot be uttered. For many of us, it's often easier to believe that God can more readily grant A safe travels, and maybe another job, or uh, performing well on a test, or the approval of our supervisor, that it is to believe that God can change the course of a child's ruinous life, or that he can turn the heart of an unfaithful husband, or bring healing from a life of guilt, or restore financial stability to a family, or provide funds for a child to go and attend a school that offers Christ-focused and centered education. As you dare to ask for more this morning, this afternoon, consider the words of Thomas Dorsey in his beloved son, song, Precious Lord, Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand, I am tired, I am weak, I am worn through the storms, through the night. Lead me on through the light, precious Lord. Take my hand, lead me on. A fourth truth in daring to ask for more involves preparing to receive the blessing, the request that we've asked for. Are we prepared to receive what we're asking God for? What does that mean? You know, part of the preparation is knowing and understanding and living in harmony with the ch- teachings of the Word of God that he has made available to, to us in his Word. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 tells us, He hath shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Luke twelve forty eight tells us, to whom much is given, much is required. So preparing to receive his blessings involves acknowledging who God is, what he has done for me, and what he continues to do and be for me. So this kind of preparation involves examining ourselves, I believe, doing a self-assessment, asking ourselves, what is our present state? What is our physical, emotional state? Are we ready to receive? Ellen White tells us in, uh, I believe, Kai Subject Lessons, she says, There is nothing that Satan fears so much as that the people of God shall clear the way by removing every hindrance so that the Lord can pour out his spirit upon a languishing and an impenitent congregation. It was so liberating for me as I heard of the accounts of the reaching out into the Downers Grove community and powerful. I'm going to keep that sheet and share that with my husband. (laughs) We could steal some ideas there. Isn't that what God is looking for in his people? So let's do a self-assessment to see if there are any spiritual breaches in our lives that may be holding back, holding us back from the blessing that God desires to give to us. For Mueller, all that was given to him was used for the care and the nurture of Bristol's children. Every dime donated was accounted for in the meticulous records that he kept. No donation that was made to the school was taken to feed his family, who themselves went hungry at times. Have we been good stewards? He has blessed us with children. Have we been good stewards? How about our health? He has blessed us with health. Have we been good stewards? Can he trust us to use wisely what we are asking for? We remember well the account of the ten talents that's recorded in Matthew chapter 15, verses 40 through 30, where uh, a man going on a journey calls his servants and gives to one ten, five ten talents, another five, and another one. The one who received five and ten invested their talents, but the one who received one did not. The master responds to him who received one. By the way, he doubled the ones who received ten and five. But to the one who received one and hid it or buried it, the master responds in verse 27, you wicked and slothful servant, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So ask God to show us how we have used the more that he's already blessed us with. Ask God to reveal to us what is hindering us from going deeper in our walk with Him, and how we can be how can we be better prepared to receive the many, many, many more blessings that He desires to give us. The fifth truth to daring to ask for more requires us to keep on asking. In Matthew chapter fifteen, verses twenty through through twenty eight. We have a beautiful account of the Canaanite woman. She wanted Jesus to heal her daughter. And she came into the vicinity crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Verse 23 of Matthew chapter 15 tells us that Jesus didn't answer her. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And then he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came further, closer, knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And then he said something cruel. Or So it seems. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, Jesus tells her. And then, she says, Yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Mrs. White gives us some clarity as to what this account is really speaking about. What is it revealing? What is it saying to me? Jesus had just departed from his field of labor because the scribes and Pharisees were seeking his life. They had murmured and complained exercising unbelief and bitterness and refusing the salvation that was so freely offered them. So here, Christ meets one of an unfortunate and despised race who had not been favored with the light of God's word. Yet at once, she yields to the divine influence of Christ, Mrs. White says in an desire of ages, and his implicit faith and his ability to grant the favor, she asks. She begs for crumbs that fall from the master's table. But then there's the silence, the silent treatment. It, says that it was as if Jesus' silence wasn't painful enough. The disciples then ask Jesus to get rid of her. And finally, Jesus see, says almost a damning word to her. He says, I am not sent to help people like you. Or he says, I'm sent, I shouldn't put words in the Lord's mouth. The Bible says, I am sent, Jesus said, I am sent to help Israel. The implications here are that he's not sent to help her. And in response, she falls and cries out for help. Again, Jesus speaks, it is not good for me to give the children's bread to dogs. Ouch. Did you catch that? Not only has Jesus ignored her cries and the disciples sending her away, Jesus reminds her that he came for Israel and not for her. Now he's compared her with a dog. What an insult. But for this woman, you see, Jesus, he knows everything. He's trying to teach a lesson. Mrs. White says, if only... She may have, referring to this Canaanite woman, the privilege of a dog. She is willing to be regarded as a dog. She has no national or religious prejudice or pride to influence her course. She immediately acknowledges Jesus as the redeemer and as being able to do all that she asks of him. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs, Jesus had told the woman, and then I, in my unsanctified imagination, hear her pleading, but, but, oh Lord, you said you will have mercy on whom you will. You did say that in your word. And you did say in your word that the prayer of a righteous woman avails much. You also said that they that call on you, you will in no wise cast out. I remember also hearing, I am thinking the woman might have thought, that if I cast all my cares upon you, you will care for me. You cannot lie, God. Jesus, you won't lie. It's a message for us today to hold fast to our faith, our faith which is tried in the daily ups and downs of life. Jesus says to the woman in verse 28, Woman, you have Great faith, your request is granted. And the Bible tells us that at that moment, her daughter was healed. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8, Paul cautions us that without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Furthermore, in Acts of the Apostles, Ellen White writes, they claim little when they might claim much, for there is no limit to the promises of God. Jesus' response to this woman was not, yes, to test her faith, but it was also a lesson for the disciples, and more importantly, for us, that our faith should not grow weary, even in the most dire of circumstances. So keep on exercising faith in God. And that leads us to a final truth that will aid us on this journey of daring to ask for more, which is to tell. Tell it. Tell of his goodness. Wasn't that what this lady was doing when she met me at the health club? She'd see me day after day. Tell of his goodness. The song that we sang at AY or the children sing in church school I will tell of the goodness of the Lord always. With my mouth will I make known his faithfulness through all generations. Tell of his goodness when you walk along the aisles of the grocery store, when you rise in the morning, if you're sleeping next to a woman or a man, your wife or your husband, tell of his goodness as you drive the kids to school, Tell of his goodness when you sit at the dinner table. I know we don't do that anymore, we're too busy. Tell of his goodness when you're spared from a near accident because you're texting and driving. Tell of his goodness when you sit in the beautician's chair or as the nurse takes your blood pressure. Tell of his goodness when you receive a good diagnosis or when you receive a disappointing diagnosis. Recount his goodness as you see your retirement earnings fluctuating with the volatility of the bear of the stock market. Tell of his goodness when you rise up in your home and of his goodness when you go to bed at night. Tell of his goodness because the thief, the enemy comes to do one thing, which is to seek to kill and destroy. But God says that I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Church family, Tell of his goodness. Hold fast to the promise that he is faithful and that his word will not return to him void. Daring to ask for more to recap encourages us to nurture a thankful spirit, to prioritize to make God first, central, and final. Daring to ask for more requires us to trust God and to do so by hanging on to every promise that he gives us. To prepare to receive a blessing. As we ask for more, he's going to bless us. But we must be prepared to receive those blessings. And then we must keep on asking and keep on asking because he's asked us to do that. And lastly, we must tell it every chance we get. Tell of his goodness. Think about what can I tell this afternoon as I go home, tonight as I call someone on the cell phone. How can I praise and tell of God's goodness? May we live, brothers and sisters, according to his word. As Christ says in John chapter 14, verse 14, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If any man serves me, him will my father serve. May God bless each of you each of us, as we dare to ask for more and as we open more hearts to receive all that our Father has in store for us. May God bless you.